pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be made holy in our hearts more than they are, it already is. As we open up your word, show us more, Lord, of who you are and who we are. Would you make us more desperate, more dependent upon you? Help us to respond to the truth of your word. We pray for our children and for those who are pouring out uh, on your behalf into their souls. Lord, give grace. Give us more of your spirit that we would be empowered to do that which we cannot do by human means. We, are, we ask you to please, Lord, give us your help, for we are all desperately in need of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have three questions this morning, which may not take that long to answer, so if there are any questions in the house, so to speak, uh, be on standby to ask them. So here's the first question. And all these questions were presented by a child who is reading the Word, coming across things, and so here's the question. So question number one, does God have mercy or compassion on Satan? It's kind of a common question for children to ask. Uh, God is forgiving. God is merciful. He is... Uh, God loves His enemies. How do we know that God loves His enemies? Where is that written? Either explicit again. John three sixteen. Yeah, God so loved the world. World definitely not just meaning uh, all nations beside the Jews, but this sinful world that He gave His Son. Whoever leaves would not perish. We deserve to perish. Um, somebody have another place in mind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's from the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why the Lord Jesus tells everyone who would be in his kingdom, everyone who would be one of these these uh this separate nation, this separate people, the Beatitudes, Christians. The reason he tells us in Matthew five to love our enemies speaks about who God is. Uh, We'll start with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you see a direct connection to if you would be children of the Lord, then act like Him. And how does God act? He loves His enemies. He does good to His enemies. And who has been a greater enemy than Satan himself, right? So it stands to reason in the mind of the questioner that since God loves his enemies and he has mercy on his enemies, will he have mercy on the greatest enemy of all? And the answer is no. He will not have mercy or compassion on Satan. In Second Peter two, lets us know this. Verse four. Second Peter two four. It says, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so there's that." mercy, compassionate opportunity. God could have spared them. He could have pardoned them. He could have forgiven. He could have sent a Savior for angels. But He did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So for uh, Satan and his demons, all of them have been... uh, Condemned, and there is no redemption for them. And that is truly an amazing thing to consider, mindful that you and I do receive mercy. How many times did the angels sin against God? Once. And what was their crime? You would wrap it up in one word. Pride. Yeah, we're going to say idolatry, pride, jealousy. Uh, Any of you ever committed the sin of pride? Or jealousy? Idolatry? Has there ever been a desire to be your own God and control your own life? Uh, Countless. We can't even keep track of how often we've done that. And yet, it's the same God. The same God who says, I will not spare you, and then compare ourselves with an angel, how glorious they are, how beautiful they are, how powerful they are, and they committed one sin, and that was enough to condemn them forever. You and I commit sins, as the Scripture says, we, we uh, drink down iniquity like water. It is what we are. It's how we act, how we operate, and in spite of all of that, God is merciful and compassionate to us. And this is why the Scripture says, uh, these are things in which angels long to look. And you can just imagine the, the angelic mind knowing exactly what took place with the fall of Satan and his demons and them remaining only because they continue to be perfect, the elect angels, the chosen angels. They walk in perfection, and that's the only reason why they remain in the presence of God and not being 
cast to hell. And they look and see us every day sinning, rebelling, hard hearts, prideful minds, jealousy, anger, spite, bickering, not valuing the Lord, all of that. And they see this and they see the same holy, holy, holy one continue to bear with us to be forgiving, to be patient. He does not deal with us according to our sins. What a, what a mind-blowing thing. And then the Lord does it a step further, referring back to what was quoted John 3.16. Not only does God spare us, but He sends the second person of the Trinity to atone for us to suffer the wrath that we deserve. Can you imagine something more shocking or unbelievable, if you will, to the angelic mind? Grace. And we're told in Scripture that the Lord did this. One of the reasons for Him doing all of this for us is for this very purpose. For the sake of upholding His glory so that these angelic beings can see. I think that's in Ephesians. Is that right? You might know the passage I'm referring to. Yes, Ephesians 3. And starting with verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, here's the reason, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know in Ephesians 6, we don't want to think rulers, authorities, and heavenly places means only the holy angels. Because what are we told in Ephesians 6? That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil where? In the heavenly places. So, what an amazing thing. Your salvation, Christian, is a stage for all the angelic beings, fallen and elect, to see the manifold wisdom of God. Any questions?
questions or comments about that? Besides, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah, thank you, God, <laughs> you're merciful. But, um, and does that bring up any other questions? Or Okay, here's the second question, and this is from Exodus 32. Verses 21 through 24. The question is, why did Aaron blame shift? I believe that he was a Christian. Why did Aaron blame shift? Somebody define blame shift without saying shifting blame. Can't use the word to define the word. Yeah, you're putting uh, fault on someone else when it should be you. You are essentially saying the reason why I did wrong is because of them, therefore I'm not to blame. I'm not guilty, I didn't do anything wrong, because the only reason I did this is because of their behavior. So really, it's their fault that I did this wrong. So don't judge me. That's blame shifting. So Aaron, the brother of Moses, at this point in history, Aaron is, he's pretty important. What is, what, what, what is his role? What is his position um, ultimately going to be? Aaron, high priest. So not only was he a, a Christian, in, you know, think the mind of the child, right? He, not only was he a believer in the Lord, but this was a, a leader. This was a, um, someone who had authority. He was someone who was to be an example to the rest of Israel. He was someone who uh, had the responsibility to go to God on behalf of the people, to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, that was the role of the priest. And he was the high priest. And in Exodus 32, 21, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Moses was shocked. What was the great sin? Well, a golden calf had been made while Moses was worshiping the Lord, receiving the law, having the, 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 the hindquarters, the, 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 the receding glory of God pass by while he was in the cleft of the rock, his name being proclaimed. Truly an amazing time. And here is the sound Sounds of war. No, it's not war. This is the sound of, of play. The people are turned aside to idolatry. What happened? Moses comes down. He sees golden calf. And Aaron is in the midst of it. And Moses is shocked. What could this people have done to you to make you do this? This isn't like you. I know you. Not only you, my brother, but we did this together. We were before Pharaoh, the plagues, the power of God, the rescue. What happened? 
And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, this is evil. You don't worship another god. Trust the Lord. Look at what he's done. Sadly, that's not what happened. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And here's the... And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <clears throat> he's blaming the people. He's blaming the fire. The fire made it. I didn't make it. I just threw it in there, and out come this fire. The question from this child's mind is, why did Aaron do this if he's a believer? And the question is, because a believer... as Colossians 3 says, still has that which is earthly dwelling within. The reality is, we all blame shift. The reality is that we all try to pass off blame on others to make ourselves appear better or to excuse ourselves from guilt. It's very easy to say it's their fault. Uh, I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for them. Because it's very difficult to be confronted with our own sin and to take ownership of it. And this is why the Spirit of God, one of the reasons why the Spirit of God has been given to us to sanctify us, to make us more and more into the image of the Lord because we're not there yet. Um, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, after talking about the, the, the right mindset to have, which is, Everything counted as rubbish compared to knowing him, to gaining him, to be completely uh, unattached to this world and the things in it and be totally and completely surrendered in every thought, uh, intention, action, everything to the Lord. That's how we are supposed to be because that's how Jesus was. And after Paul lays out, this is right. This is how, this is exactly where we are all to be. This is, this is the way. He then says in verse 12 of Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, perfection is obtaining this, having this heart that is unattached, unaffected, sees Christ as the superior treasure in every way, not just in thought, but in action, is totally there. There's no sin because every sin is treasuring something besides the Lord. Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. That is, that is the way as well. Here is the reality. God has justified us. He's made us perfectly righteous before him because of the sacrifice of Christ. We are positionally perfect. So when God looks at you, Christian, what does he see? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the same time, as Martin Luther put it, um, we are justified yet sinning. We are perfect yet being made perfect. We are saved and yet we are still being saved. We press on. We set our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we run this race shedding the things of this world and this life, the stains and the failures, casting off the weight that so easily besets us. And every day, Christian, that is what you do, right? You say, this, this, you wake up in the morning, Lord, I want to love you more today than I did yesterday. I want to serve you more faithfully than I did yesterday. I want to trust you more completely than I did yesterday. I want to be more surrendered to you than I was yesterday. And why can we say that? Because yesterday, we were not perfectly surrendered, trusting, loving, obedient. But we press on every day. And every Christian, every genuine Christian knows this, can relate to this, and understands this in others. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's our motivation. That's the reason. Because Christ, he loved me. He died for me. He chose me. He made sure that I would come in because he he shed his blood for me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. You want to know how mature you are? How much is your mind like this? And how much is your mind like this toward other believers? Why did Aaron blame shift? Because he was still being sanctified. That doesn't excuse it. That doesn't make it right. It was wrong. It was sinful. And that's the very point. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need Grace. That's why we need mercy. That's why we need the body. That's why we need one another. It's so easy for us to get to the point where we, uh, by God's grace and His Spirit, we, we, we conquer some sin, right? Whatever it is in your life. Something that God has given you grace by His Spirit to conquer. And then you look at someone else, another believer, who has not been given that grace. They're not at the point of where they've conquered it it's easy to look down on them and say, what's taking you so long? What's wrong with you? 
forgetting why am I victorious in the first place? Victory in Jesus. That's why we have victory. Not because I'm so strong and I'm so noble or I'm so learned. Not at all. The only reason Paul said, I am what I am. How? By the grace of God. That's it. And when we have that mindset, when we are mature in this way, then we are gracious with one another as uh, is that Galatians. Yeah. <clears throat> Galatians says, um, Galatians 6. Brothers, verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, like blame shifting, you who are spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, he just talked about the fruit of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Why gentleness? Because that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What, what are the burdens that Galatians 6 tells us to bear? The sin of others, the falls of others, the failures of others. We bear their burdens, how? By restoring them in a spirit of gentleness, being mindful, I can be tempted with the same thing, I can fall into the same thing, so let me walk with them in gentleness, restoring them. This is what maturity looks like. Uh, so, was it good that Aaron blame-shifted? Not at all. It was sinful and there are consequences when we sin. It's, it's not always, well, the Lord forgives you and, and you just go on. No, sometimes there are consequences, but that consequence is also the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. And no discipline is pleasant in the moment, but what does it do? It produces the abiding fruit of what? How does Hebrews put it? Righteousness. Yeah, we, 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 the, the number one prayer request for everyone who is truly a Christian is, Lord, will you please make me more like who? Christ. And Christ doesn't blame shift. There's no blame to be put on him. In fact, not only does Christ not blame shift, because he couldn't, he takes the blame on himself and suffers in our place Okay, any, uh, any comments or questions about that one? Okay, and the final question that is asked by... Yeah, yeah.
it's been right. Yeah, they, as you said, it's, it's not supposed to lead to that, but that's evidence that something's wrong with us. We're broken. The more we learn about God, I mean, take Calvinism, for example, right? The sovereignty of God, no boasting in I. And yet, the reality is, often there are talks to young Calvinists as well as to older, beware of spiritual pride. Well, wait a minute. I believe in the sovereignty of God and that everything that is is because of him and there's nothing in me. There's nothing I can do. It's all his power. It's all his grace. How is there room for boasting? And yet, at the same time, there is boasting. What about Jonah, the prophet of the Lord? He's proclaiming God's message to this people. He sins against the Lord, is put into the mouth of this fish, receives mercy. I like to say still smells like fish as he goes to the people. They repent and he's upset. That doesn't compute. Something's wrong with us. And yes, if we learn more, it is very possible that we could fall into spiritual pride in God. He gives us two options. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God or I will humble you, but you will be humble. And sadly, we tend to choose option B far too often. And we know that the Lord is jealous for his namesake, right? He doesn't he will not share his glory with another and um, he loves to use the weak things to confound the wise. So our strength, if we don't immediately recognize that the only reason that I am strong, this goes back to talking about the Aaron, right? The only, the only reason I'm strong, the only reason that I'm walking right, the only reason that I'm faithful, the only reason that I'm kind, the only reason I do anything positive or good or beneficial or productive is God's grace to me. And if I lose sight of that, and I think uh, I have the illustration of the, um, the, the, the double amputee, who has these amazing um, prosthetic limbs and they forget, I really can't walk, right? They forget it's, it's these limbs by the work of the doctor that is making me able to walk and uh, we are like that. We forget the only reason I am standing is because he is keeping me, he will hold me fast. Uh, but then there are others who grow in knowledge and wisdom. They know a lot and they can be some of the most humble, gentle, kind and compassionate people. Um, 
so it, of course we know it's not a one-to-one -one correlation but it really all has to do with our heart toward the Lord and our understanding of let those who are mature think this way. And I know I have chosen option B far more often than I care to admit, but it's reality. And it's so much, oh God, it's so much better when I humble myself before the mighty hand of God than when I am stiff-necked and hard-headed and I have to be humbled. But yeah, that's a very important uh, thing to remember. Because then people go on the other extreme, right? And they say, see, that's what all that learning gets you. Uh, cemetery, uh, uh, seminary is a cemetery. Um, you know, you're focusing too much on learning and all this. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa that's an extreme. It's not... It's not the, the head, the mind, or uh, the life and the heart. They're supposed to go together. The more knowledge we gain about God, it's supposed to influence how we walk among others. So make sure that cover both of those grounds. Yeah, may God help us. Okay. Did God ever have mercy on King Saul? Now, the very question itself arises, we can go to 1 Samuel, uh, because what, what, what are some positive things that we can say about Saul? Yeah. Yeah, we we but even before he fell he was chosen by God. That sounds like election. First Samuel 9. Um Verse uh, 15, of course, Samuel was being told by the Lord to go and find this man. Uh, now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be a prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall rest restrain my people. God chose him to be a, a prince, a king, a ruler, to protect the people. And Saul even began to be filled with the Spirit and do what? Prophesy. Saul is prophesying. Saul among the prophets? Saul, he was anointed king. He, he did defeat 
many enemies. He did good things. It seemed good. But then there were other things about his life that were very, very troubling. Um, he had jealousy against David. He had hatred and murder in his heart. He was rebellious. 1 Samuel 15, we went through that. Obedience better than sacrifice. He directly disobeyed God. In uh, chapter 13, he offered the sacrifice. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. He did not wait. He offered a sacrifice that was unlawful. Uh, do you remember when the sons of Aaron offered strange fire, Nadab and Abihu? They didn't offer the sacrifice the right way. What happened to them? The Lord killed them. Fire came out. The Lord struck them dead. Here is Saul offering sacrifices unlawfully. He shouldn't have done that. Um, Uzzah reaches out his hand. He touches the ark. It's unlawful. He struck dead. Sam, uh, Saul... He's spared. He does this evil thing. He disobeys God. He offers unlawful sacrifices. We see that in, uh, after his rebellion in chapter 15, that a, a, a troubling spirit, uh, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon him, and David had to play his harp to have that removed. That's, that's not a good sign. Think of how much energy was directed at trying to murder David. That became the passion of his life, his hatred for this man. He hated him so much, and he was consumed with this. He spent his time, his energy, he even pulled his army out. He He hated his own son because of this. And in 1 Samuel 22, when the priests, remember there was the, the, uh, David ate the showbread that was not lawful. Saul found out about it, murdered not just that man, but 22 priests and their families. He was a murderer. He was filled with jealousy. He was filled with anger and hatred. He was visited by evil spirits. He directly disobeyed the Lord. And then he went against the very law that he helped to institute. No witches, no necromancers. In 1 Samuel 28, what do we find him doing? Going to the witch of Endor, pretending that he's not who he is having her call up Samuel from the dead, and Samuel brings the condemnation upon him even more. And and how does Saul end his life? Turn to 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised 
come and thrust me through and mistreat me, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul committed suicide. Yes, uh, and we see the downfall. We, we see that, again, things looked good for him at a time. And yes, there were some stumbles, there were some falls, but God had mercy and He gave him another opportunity. But it was after that deliberate disobedience in 1 Samuel 15 that everything began to crumble and he began to get worse and worse and worse. And he ended terribly. So did God have mercy on Saul? I I don't have any reason to think that He did. I think Saul, uh, some people argue that, well, God chose him. He was anointed. That means that he was elect and filled with the Spirit. He prophesied by the Spirit. Uh, So people say, yeah, that he, he, he was forgiven in the end. The truth of the matter is, I don't have a definite answer, but I don't have much reason to think that he was. And there are two verses that come to mind. Well, three. One is what we've been looking at in Romans 1. This intentional rebellion against the knowledge of God leads to more and more darkness. Two is Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. For on that day, many will say to me, well, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them on that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So you can prophesy and you can do many mighty works in the name of the Lord and you can even cast demons out of people. I think that correlates to gospel preaching because if you are filled with demons and the gospel is preached, the Spirit of God fills that person, demons are out. I I think you can do many mighty works on behalf of God, even prophecy, even miracles, and still not know Him because what was the evidence they didn't know Him? What is your life like? And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he who knows what is right to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Saul knew that he was supposed to eradicate the Amalekites and he deliberately did the opposite. And in our lives, we don't know everything. There are many things we don't know. 
things that we're still discovering about the will of the Lord and things that He's pleased with and displeased with. But there are things that you and I know that He wants from us. Very clear commandments from Him. And if we look at those commandments and say, I refuse for blame shifting, I'm not going to do it because of them, because of something they did, uh, for passion, but I I feel really strongly about this, so I don't want to. Um, what's, What's that word? Pragmatism? It doesn't work. I do it and it doesn't work, so why continue to do it? Whatever reason we give, if we go on sinning deliberately, this is not a slip, this is not a fall, this is a dive with intentional purpose, with the knowledge of the Lord and His Word, the warning that we're given is terrifying. And I think that's what we see in the life of Saul. If we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who's set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, meaning they are to be stoned. Let not your eye pity them, is the language How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The tragedy is some people will hear that and not be moved. They will continue to blame shift. They'll continue to make excuses for disobedience. And like Saul, it will not go well for them. But the people of God will hear that. We hear these warnings and we say, Lord, I don't want to go that way. And I know the only reason that... Thus far I haven't is because of your mercy and grace. May I rely on your spirit. May I rely on you and your help. May I dive into the word and cling to your promises. Please keep me from that. May I walk carefully in obedience before you. Help me to set my mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Lord, please guard my heart, guard my mind. May I keep short accounts with you. Nothing between my soul and the Savior There is safety clinging close to the cross of Calvary. Uh, Yeah. Any thoughts? Any other questions? I suppose the last thing in closing that I would say is that the encouragement is it brings us kind of back to the first question of does God have compassion on Satan, right? The angels sin, there's no mercy. We sin and there's mercy. God is merciful. So repent, right? As you examine your own life, 
in light of Saul's example, I don't want to end up like that. Uh, remember with David's prayer, Lord, search me, know me, test my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. I, I don't want to be even blind to my own areas of sinfulness. Show me. And you may be used to show someone else. You may see the blind spots in another believer's life. And if so, what does Galatians 6 tell us? If we do see someone who's taken in a transgression, we are to restore them how? In the spirit of gentleness. Lest we be forgetful that we can be tempted in such the same way. All right. I think that's good. Let's let's pray. Father, the questions of a child, but when they're about you, Lord, when they're about your word, how deep can we go? And Lord, this is not just an exercise in trivia. These are these are things that Touch us right where we stand, where we sit. Please, Lord, help us. Help us to be grateful for the grace and mercy that we have been given that has not been given to angels. Help us, dear Lord, to ah, to not blame shift as Aaron did, but to be mindful and to take ownership for the things that we do so that we might be forgiven and and helped. And at the same time, Lord, help us to not forget the reality of sanctification, that it's a process, and any growth that we have is because of You. And Lord, may we never deliberately go after evil, thinking, well, God will forgive, God will have mercy. Lord, may we not fall into the temptation of of the devil Jump from the top of this pillar, for it is written, His angels will bear you up. Help us to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness because we're being transparent with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.